Section 17 of Fires and Firefighters by John Kenlon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 Firefighting in the United Kingdom. Comparisons are often instituted between the fire risks of London and New York. It is glibly pointed out by statisticians with facile pens that whereas for every 100,000 inhabitants, London averages 81 and New York 300 fires, and whereas the population of London is considerably greater than that of New York, ergo fire control in the former city has attained to a higher degree of scientific evolution than in the latter, and further deductions are drawn according to the nationality and enthusiasm of the individual. But such reasoning is founded upon the superficial aspect of the subject, without taking into consideration the numerous contributive factors governing the problem. In the first place, in making these invidious comparisons, writers forget that units of apparatus, ability of personnel, and general efficiency may be on a par in two separate firefighting organizations, but owing to local causes and climatic conditions, the annual record of the two may be widely divergent. New York has certain disadvantages with which to contend. Its modern buildings are the highest in the world, in themselves a staggering question for the firefighter. In portions of the city there are streets comprising nothing but wooden buildings which burn like torches. Extremes of climate render fires more prevalent and more hazardous. The alien population is vast and criminally careless. And finally, unfortunately, arson has grown to be regarded amongst undesirables as a legitimate and easy way of obtaining insurance as a form of income. Any unprejudiced observer will allow that in these respects London is more fortunately situated, which admission detracts in no whit from the standard of excellence of both departments, which are well worthy of the great capitals they represent. In considering rather more particularly the outstanding features of its brigade, London, in common with all other English cities, has no need for the heavy appliances usually seen in America. Owing to the narrow, tortuous streets in all ancient towns, the manipulation of weighty apparatus with lengthy wheelbases becomes practically impossible, while the average building, constructed of stone, and of only four or five stories in height, does not constitute a grave fire risk. The residential area of London is chiefly composed of such erections, and even in the wealthier suburbs, where the houses stand in their own grounds, this fact of itself is sufficient to prevent a serious conflagration. In the eastern section of the metropolitan district and along the docks and wharves lining the River Thames, the risks are materially greater, and hence there is a considerable concentration of strength in this locality, though it is worthy of note that of the 65 outbreaks classified as serious during the year 1911, about 34 occurred in quarters inhabited by aliens, a sufficiently good indication of the truth of the preceding statement, that these foreign colonies are a fruitful source of anxiety to the authorities of any city. It is also of interest that of the grand total of 4,000 and odd fires during that year, no less than 1,762 were directly attributed to carelessness, 
while only 28 resulted from arson. Prior to the year 1866, the protection of London from fire depended upon an organization known as the London Fire Engine Establishment, which consisted of only 130 officers and men, operating 17 stations. The cost of its maintenance was chiefly borne by fire insurance companies, and its duties were practically confined to fire quenching. For the saving of life from fire during many years, the Royal Society for the Protection of Life from Fire, which was supported by voluntary contributions, supplied and manned some 85 fire escapes which were stationed in various parts of the city, few being in the suburbs. There were, in addition, several so-called volunteer fire brigades, which were not under the direct control of any recognized authority, and proved a veritable thorn in the flesh to the municipality. Having no definite financial support, they employed collectors, with the result that the unfortunate ratepayers were solicited for contributions towards associations which, with rare exceptions, seldom performed any useful service, and for the disposal of whose funds there was no adequate guarantee. Moreover, it was customary for these gentlemen to wear a uniform similar to that of the professional firefighters, causing a good deal of acrimonious confusion amongst those who were under the impression that they had contributed towards the funds of the professional fire brigade. The Act of Parliament of 1865, however, put an end to this ambiguous state of affairs, and on January 1st of the following year, the Metropolitan Board of Works assumed the responsibilities of the two first-named organizations under the title of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade. As for the volunteers, they lingered for some time, being disbanded one by one, till in 1900 the sole surviving company, located in Islington, closed its doors. The funds provided by the aforesaid Act for the maintenance of the brigade were a. Contributions by the fire insurance companies, at the rate of £35, $175, per million of the gross amounts insured by them in respect of property in London. This was calculated to bring in about £10,000, $50,000 annually, while in addition the buildings and staff of the London Fire Engines establishment were handed over free of charge. B a government grant of £10,000, $50,000 a year, in consideration of the protection afforded public buildings and offices. C. The produce of a halfpenny rate, one cent, on all the rateable property in London, which it was estimated would realize a sum of £30,000, $150,000 a year. It will thus be seen that less than half a century ago it was decided, after careful debate, that the fire control of London could be accomplished for the expenditure of £50,000, $250,000 per annum, whereas today it costs in the neighborhood of £270,000, $1,350,000, or more than five times as much and there is no probability of any finality having been reached. To defray this constant increase, varied legislation was introduced. 
till the Local Government Act of 1888 virtually repealed any limitation of the amount which might be raised from the ratepayers for fire brigade purposes. Incidentally, it is an interesting historical fact that the year 1865, which saw the birth of the modern London Fire Brigade, likewise witnessed the genesis of the existing New York Fire Department. The first chief of the newly formed organization was the late Captain Sir Eyre Massey Shaw, KCB, who, an Irishman by birth, had previously been in charge of the Belfast Fire Department, and whose subsequent twenty-five years of service with the London Command witnessed the stations of the brigade quadrupled, and the strength of the personnel increased from one hundred and thirty to seven hundred men. Amongst the more important changes which he introduced were the street fire alarm system, and the substitution of telephonic for telegraphic communication between stations. From its formation until 1904, the force was known as the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, when, with the sanction of Parliament, it was designated the London Fire Brigade. The old title was somewhat misleading since large districts in the London area are outside London County proper, and though on occasion the services of the brigade may be summoned to assist suburban fire departments, it is then entitled to make a pecuniary charge for the same. Thus, for the attendance of a steam fire engine, the scale of payment is a preliminary fee of two pounds, ten dollars, with an additional one pound, five dollars, for every hour or part of an hour during which it may be working. A fire boat costs as much as six pounds, thirty dollars, for the initial expense of its attendance, each succeeding hour being rated at one pound, five dollars. The manner in which this expense must be borne is clearly indicated in the following excerpt from the official regulations. In such cases, the owner and occupant of the property on which the fire occurs are jointly and severally liable to pay a reasonable charge in respect of the attendance of the brigade. This in itself is sufficiently clear, at least in theory, but in practice there must at times be some difficulty in collecting such charges, in which case presumably the ratepayers of the borough concerned must be held responsible. Without wishing to be hypercritical, it does appear to the writer that such a system is open to grave disadvantages, since it is seldom the destruction of one individual building which is at stake, but rather the possibility of the fire spreading and endangering a large area. On the other hand, it may be argued that those who do not assist in supporting the organization have no right to expect the free use of its apparatus and personnel. Hence it becomes a question beyond the criticism of one not conversant with local conditions. To accommodate the London Brigade, there are 83 stations or engine houses, though in addition there still remain some of the old street stations, wooden shelters in which, as a rule, are kept extension ladders, and which, owing to the inconvenience they cause vehicular traffic, are fast being superseded. For the extinction of riverside or wharf outbreaks, fireboats are stationed at certain points on the river, their crews being lodged either in adjacent fire stations or in buildings especially erected for the purpose. The general principle determining the distribution of fire stations in London 
is the necessity of ensuring a the speedy arrival after a call of life-saving and fire-extinguishing appliances at any spot in the protected area and b the concentration of one hundred men within fifteen minutes in any dangerous location for large fires on receipt of an alarm the fire appliances turn out with all possible speed sliding poles for the men on duty and automatic hitches for harnessing the horses being now of almost universal adoption and rendering a start feasible within the space of a few seconds it is the custom for the life-saving appliances to leave first which on the face of it is humanitarian though perhaps not eminently practical unaided by other apparatus except under rare circumstances it can accomplish little all appliances at the station nearest to the scene of the outbreak are withdrawn for service leaving one man behind in the watch-room to preserve telephonic communication between the officer in charge at the fire and the district superintendent while the former has power also to obtain the assistance of the engines located at the station next to his arrived at the outbreak the fire chief classifies it according to its severity and transmits one of the three following calls one the home call which signifies that he is confident that he can deal with it by means of the apparatus at his command two the district call which means that more assistance is required but that it can be obtained from adjacent stations and three the brigade call which is an appeal to headquarters for both men and apparatus such a system certainly as applied to any city with a considerable fire risk is open to grave defects in the first place the telephone operator left at the station of the first alarm is in a difficult position if another alarm comes in from the surrounding neighborhood and might well become flurried and misunderstand orders it is imperative that there should be direct communication between the fire chief and his lieutenants otherwise there can be little hope of effective cooperation in addition no provision is made for one engine house to cover another so that in the event of several fires in the same area all can be quickly and efficiently attacked the policy employed appears rather to be one of centralization of men and apparatus robbed of half its efficiency by roundabout and clumsy means of giving and receiving orders at any rate it is certain that in a city like new york the practice of taking all the appliances from a fire station and leaving it unprotected would be fraught with the most terrible danger to public property and would in fact never be tolerated by those responsible local conditions may vary and materially influence fire organization but the cardinal points of fighting strategy are the same the world over and as in regular warfare one of the most important is ever to be prepared for a flank or rear attack the present strength of the london brigade consists of one chief officer four divisional officers two hundred eleven subordinate officers and one thousand one hundred sixty three rank and file including men under instruction pilots and coachmen considering the prevailing wages in england the scale of payments is adequate starting with one thousand pounds five thousand dollars a year for the chief a maximum of two hundred forty five pounds one thousand two hundred twenty five dollars for superintendents 
while the ordinary fireman receives thirty-five shillings, eight dollars and seventy-five cents a week, after qualifying as efficient and passing certain tests. Quarters are provided for single and married men alike, a minimum charge being made for the same, ranging from four shillings, one dollar, per week for married firemen, to one shilling, twenty-five cents, for single men. Incidentally, it is compulsory to live in these quarters, which are in every case situated over the engine houses. After five years of approved service, and less than fifteen, there is a gratuity of one month's pay for each year of such service. Upon the completion of fifteen years, three-tenths of the pay then being received is allocated as pension. Those who serve for a longer period receive corresponding increases, until, with twenty-eight years of service, the pension amounts to two-thirds of the nominal pay. In the event of those incapacitated from further service, through injuries received in the execution of their duty, a special allowance is made according to the particular merits of the case. Pensions are also allowed to the widow and children of officers and men killed while on duty. The regulations are unusually considerate, and that in the case of a widow remarrying, although her pension is to be suspended from the date of her remarriage, should she for a second time become a widow, it may be restored, on proof that her circumstances are such that it is necessary for her support, and that she is deserving of the public bounty. For many years it was customary to enroll as firemen none but seafaring men, but lately this has been modified, and now entry to the brigade's ranks is open to all possessed of the necessary qualifications. As regards promotion, this is limited, inasmuch as the senior officers of the force are usually drawn from the executive branch of the Royal Navy, or are engineers of repute in some specialized section of their chosen profession. This forms a radical difference between the practice not alone of the United States, but of most foreign countries, True, in Germany and France, senior officers are men of naval or military training, but they join the fire service as youths and work their way up through the various degrees of command in a precisely similar manner as they would were they attached to the army or navy. But the point is that they are thoroughly trained at every step, and though the system is by no means ideal, it is preferable to the appointment of officers to a highly scientific corps who, though no doubt able and intelligent men, cannot possibly possess either theoretical or practical knowledge of the subject with which they are called upon to deal. In America, it is no exaggeration to say that every newly enlisted fireman is a potential chief. It depends solely upon the ability and determination of the individual, whether or no he shall rise to a position of executive importance, or whether he shall spend all his days in the ranks. This must prove a powerful incentive to any normal character to go forward and win, and it may be asserted without fear of contradiction that the fireman devoid of ambition is of little use to any fire department. It has been argued time and again that the rank and file are apt to prove insubordinate when one of their number is delegated to be in command over them, Certainly, in American fire practice, this has never proved the case. Rather, it has been the opposite, and the men have been proud in the success of one of their comrades. 
Further, in the opinion of the writer, the profession of firefighting is one which demands that those adopting it as a calling should be equally versed in all branches of its requirements, in practice and theory. This entails actual experience in physically as well as mentally fighting fires. It means familiarity with the handling of hose, the management of extension ladders, and that intimacy with fire as an enemy which can only be gained firsthand. It goes without saying that the officer in charge of a battleship's barbette guns is thoroughly conversant with every detail of their mechanism, with their muzzle velocities, with their arc of fire, with the individual merits of their projectiles, be they armor-piercing or high-explosive. In fact, he is a master of craft learned in the school of experience. Why, then, should less be expected of or demanded from officers in charge of equipment with which to fight every whit as dangerous an enemy as ever sailed a sea, when lives unnumbered and property beyond calculation may depend upon their actions, and when it must be remembered that every fight is a l'outrance without chance of armistice? Turning now to the matter of appliances, the 86 fire stations are equipped with 72 horsed steam fire engines, 3 steam and 15 petrol motor fire engines, 16 mechanically driven fire escapes, 191 ordinary fire escapes, 94 hook and ladder trucks, 11 hose and coal vans, 1 motor lorry, 90 hose carts, and 56 miles of hose, not including a large amount of smaller apparatus. Of the steam fire engines, it is noticeable that some of them, though of antiquated pattern, are still adequate for useful service. Thus, one has been in use since 1878, or over a quarter of a century. All the modern types are double-cylindered, their average pumping capacity being one and three-quarters English gallons per revolution. In every case, axles and wheels are made to gauge and are interchangeable. Some of the engines are fitted with burners for using petroleum as fuel. For a number of years, it has been the practice to keep a sufficient pressure of steam in the boilers of all engines to enable a full working head to be obtained in from two to three minutes after leaving the station. Since 1901, motor traction has been gradually introduced, and although steam-propelled fire engines have not given entire satisfaction and are even now for sale, there is no doubt as elsewhere that motor traction has come to stay, and in course of time the horse will be eliminated from the department. As regards ladders, the largest in use by the brigade are those of 82 feet, that being their vertical height from the ground when fully extended. Being heavy and requiring a strong crew, they are used primarily for facilitating fire extinguishing operations. The work of their extension is controlled by a small motor, worked by a compressed carbonic acid arrangement, or in emergency by hand, and being mounted on a turntable fixed to a horse-drawn carriage, they are known generally as turntable long ladders. For regular fire escape work, the ladders used are 55 and 70 feet of the telescopic pattern. Motor escapes are being introduced, but their use has by no means become general. 
As regards horse-drawn appliances, which are still largely in the majority, the animals are hired from job masters, and the price paid, including ordinary harness, fodder, straw, and stable utensils, amounts to about seventy pounds, three hundred fifty dollars, per horse, per annum. The job masters take all risks. At stations where automatic harness is in use belonging to the department, a reduction of fifty-five shillings, thirteen dollars, is made. Practically all the horsed escapes are fitted with appliances known as first-aid fire extinguishing machines. These consist of a tank containing water connected with a cylinder of compressed air, which, being operated, can maintain a jet for from four to four and a half minutes. There are about eighty-one of these appliances in use, but the chemical engine, per se, is unknown. Such additional apparatus as cellar pipes, smoke helmets, and a small number of hook ladders are in regular use. But it is noticeable that the water tower and other forms of heavy equipment are lacking, which is to be accounted for by the low buildings and narrow streets. It is almost a pity that a picturesque survival of ancient days has latterly passed from the London Fire Department. Not many years ago, it was customary for firemen proceeding to the scene of an outbreak to herald their progress by shouting, Hi! 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 Some five years ago this was discontinued and a brass bell substituted. Some reference may here be made to the floating fire equipment of the London Brigade. This has been developed under peculiarly restricted conditions, since the Thames is a tidal river, with only five feet of water in some places at low tide. Moreover, most of the traffic is carried on in heavily laden barges with low freeboards, handicapping fireboats as regards their speed, owing to the liability of their wash swamping the former. Finally, these fire floats are limited as to their length and breadth, since it is necessary so to arrange their dimensions that they may easily enter the connecting locks of docks and canals, while their height above the water line must also permit them to pass under low bridges. Considering the enormous dock area of the Port of London, the greatest credit is due to the officers and men for the ability and technical skill which they display in defending the vast responsibility committed to their charge, which, owing to the conditions already stated, rendered the problem one of the most difficult of solution in the world. The first vessel to be built was the Alpha, a twin-screw boat eighty feet in length, with a beam of sixteen feet and a draft of three, on a displacement of sixty-three tons, and having a speed of ten knots. It was fitted with pumps capable of discharging one thousand two hundred fifty English gallons a minute. This was succeeded by another handy little vessel, the Beta, equipped with four pumps, each with a discharging capacity of 1,000 English gallons a minute at 140 pounds pump pressure. These have been followed by the introduction of motor fire floats, propelled by internal combustion gasoline engines. The latest addition embodies several new principles. With a length of 100 feet and a beam of 19, the draft of water is only 2 feet. She is propelled by triple screws driven by 60-horsepower engines, 
and the collective delivery of her pumps is about 1,500 English gallons a minute. The screws work in tunnels, and her design is such that when proceeding at full speed, about 11 knots, the bow wave is absorbed under the bottom of the vessel, and little or no wash is apparent. With the object of ensuring that the fire brigade shall be readily and easily summoned when a fire occurs, great attention is being paid to increasing the facilities by which it may be called, and in making them known to the public. Connected with every engine house are fire alarms situated in the chief thoroughfares, the number varying with the fire risks of the area. These alarms are equipped and supervised by the post office, an annual rent being paid for their use, as also in the case of the station telephones. In 1911, the number of these alarm boxes totaled 1,545, and the Council of the Fire Department have a scheme for their augmentation on a large scale at present under consideration. It is worthy of note that a number of posts in the east end of the city have recently been fitted with tablets bearing instructions for their use in Yiddish. All street alarms are adapted for the transmission of telephone messages by firemen, suitable instruments being carried on all brigade appliances for this purpose. The principal police stations are in telephonic communication with the fire stations, and this also exists between the latter and the majority of public and other large buildings, such as theaters and so forth. During 1911, the total number of calls amounted to 6,868, working out at a daily average of 19, though on the 14th of August, during a great heat wave, there were 53. In England, it is a criminal offense to send in a malicious false alarm, and a person so doing is liable to a penalty not exceeding 25 pounds, $125, or imprisonment for three months with hard labor, from the latest report, it appears that the total of malicious false alarms has increased considerably, amounting now to 357, which constitutes a record. This increase can only be explained by the unwelcome attention of the suffragettes with militant tendencies. It is outside the scope of this work to enter upon a dissertation concerning the rights and wrongs of their movement, but as far as fire duty is concerned, there can be only one opinion— Every false alarm draws men and apparatus away from a certain area, which is thus left so much the less prepared to meet an attack by fire, while it stands to reason that constantly responding to these calls unnecessarily fatigues men and horses and renders them less fit for duty. Hence the action of these women constitutes a menace to the community and is one of selfish egotism, deserving not alone the condemnation of every right-minded citizen, but the infliction of such punishment as shall render similar behavior in the future, even on the part of half-crazed fanatics, unlikely to occur. There is considerable fluctuation in the number of fires reported annually in London. Thus, in 1907, the total of 3,320 was a decrease of 523 on the preceding year, and represented a financial loss of £493,389. 1908 and 1909 saw the decrease continue, the latter year having 123 fires less than 1907, 
though the financial loss shot up to six hundred ninety nine thousand three hundred twenty nine pounds it remained however for nineteen eleven to beat all previous records the number of fires increasing to four thousand four hundred three an increase of one thousand one hundred ninety five monetary loss being seven hundred eighty nine thousand and three pounds or nearly four million dollars the extended use of motor vehicles has an important bearing both on the outbreaks registered and on the amount of the fire loss since fires in garages are common and the values involved considerable chimney fires are not included in these statistics though their number averages about eight hundred per annum in this connection it may be remarked that by a special act of nineteen hundred the occupant of any house the chimney of which catches fire must pay towards the cost of the london fire brigade a fine fixed upon the rateable value of the premises ranging from two shillings sixpence sixty cents up to a maximum of one pound five dollars the training of the men belonging to the brigade is sufficient for the demands made upon them particular attention being given to motor engineering instruction in first aid and gymnastics the following excerpt however taken from the last official report issued throws a curious light upon the somewhat haphazard methods employed in the physical training of the men early in nineteen eleven the fitting up at the manchester square fire station of a gymnasium with apparatus for carrying out swedish drill was completed and an additional fireman was added to the strength of the brigade to act as physical drill instructor so much interest was evinced in the matter by the staff that gymnastic apparatus has been provided at other stations and a number of well-attended classes has been held there is no doubt that the staff have felt the lack of opportunities for physical training especially in view of the number of hook ladders carried on fire appliances and the extended use of such ladders it seems needless to emphasize the importance of constant physical training of firemen as quite irrespective of a man's muscular development he quickly becomes stiff and slow of movement unless either constantly drilled or at least given the opportunity of obtaining gymnastic exercise as regards loss of life during the last year for which particulars are available one hundred fifty one deaths are recorded of which no fewer than sixty-two were those of children under the age of twelve the causes of the fires at which this loss occurred include twelve cases of children playing with fire eleven from their playing with matches while thirty-two were attributable to clothing coming into contact with fire or gas stoves this infantile mortality of approximately forty per cent of the total death roll though in itself insignificant when compared with an estimated population of over four and one-half million certainly points to the fact that some sort of instruction about the dangers of fire could usefully be included in the curriculum of board schools as it is done in germany by the metropolis water act of eighteen seventy one it was provided that the water companies should supply where necessary water for firefighting free of charge while they should also install such plugs or hydrants as might be required at the expense of the department at present the total number of hydrants in the metropolitan area is about twenty nine thousand 
Before 1897, all hydrants in the county of London, outside the city proper, were made with one outlet. In that year, it was suggested that new hydrants should be provided with two outlets, when erected in localities where the fire risks were considerable. The disadvantage of the double outlet hydrants used in the city itself, numbering over 800 and provided by the city corporation at its own cost, was that in the event of it being necessary to connect a second length of hose to the hydrant when the first was already in use, the control valve had to be temporarily closed. Apart from the delay, which might be fatal, the fireman operating the branch in action was often disconcerted by the sudden stoppage of his water supply, and might conceivably find himself in danger owing to this cause. To obviate this, the fire committee of the London County Council decided that the experiment should be tried of placing two hydrants in one pit, each being fitted with a control valve. This scheme proved satisfactory, though on account of the expense involved, its introduction has not been general. In January 1901, however, it was determined that the branch pipes connecting hydrants to mains should in every case be of five inches diameter, that is, sufficient to supply double hydrants should they be universally installed. Hydrants fixed in public thoroughfares are tested by firemen every two months, and are also examined and tested by inspectors under the supervision of the chief officer. And as a result of deficiency in water supply on some occasions, many fresh connections have been made, and the water companies involved have themselves contributed towards the expense of laying new mains or pipes for fire purposes. The quantity of water used during 1911 amounted to 33 million odd gallons, or not three times as much as was used in one fire in New York, the Equitable. Two-thirds of this quantity was drawn direct from street mains, the other third being supplied by the River Thames and canals. The double-pattern hydrants deliver on an average 800 English gallons a minute, which does not seem excessive when compared with the 4,000 gallons obtainable from the high-pressure hydrants in America. The inspection of public buildings is undertaken by the brigade free of charge, though in certain cases grants in aid are forthcoming to provide for the special staff necessary for the operation. In theaters, in which public performances are regularly given, there is an official inspection every ten days to ensure that the rules of the municipality for securing the safety of the public are enforced. This applies in a modified form to the cinematograph halls, temporary exhibitions, and bazaars, and the plans of all new buildings requiring licenses and of proposed alterations to existing buildings are referred to the chief officer for examination and report. Lodging houses designed to accommodate more than 80 persons are likewise under the control of the fire department as regards means of escape, etc., and though in the first instance this is the business of the architect who must conform to the building rules of the London County Council, the responsibility for their efficient maintenance rests with the fire chief. In all, about 22,000 inspections are made annually. Latterly, the underground electric railways which honeycomb London have also passed under the supervision of the chief officer, 
whose advice has been followed regarding the fire safety of these means of transportation. It is estimated that the cost of this inspection branch amounts to approximately £4,000, $20,000 per annum. No less than 265 officers and men were injured in the execution of their duty during the year 1911, or one-fifth of the whole firefighting strength. This is a high percentage, and bespeaks devotion to service, which is in every way commendable, and it must be remembered that it is not always the greatest fire which offers the most risk to life and limb. Thus it will be seen that London is efficiently guarded in its fire hazard, and though perhaps some of the methods employed may appear antiquated and not in accordance with the latest improvements in fire control, yet after all the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and for a city of its population the fire loss is small, whether or no the department could successfully cope with a great sweeping conflagration in the warehouse district is a moot question, which most assuredly the writer trusts will never arise for solution. But there seems no doubt that the chances of a serious disaster from fire in the residential district are practically non-existent, while the building regulations in force are of so stringent a character that, except in the case of panic, against which no one can guard, fire risks in theatres are reduced to a minimum. In this connection, a word of praise must be added for the British Fire Prevention Committee, a voluntary organization which has devoted time, energy, and money towards the solution of all problems affecting fire control, and which, in the most public-spirited manner, has given the results arrived at gratis to the world at large. In considering the fire departments of the important boroughs in the United Kingdom, one outstanding feature is little short of amazing. This is the small number of personnel, as compared with the population and the pecuniary values they are called upon to protect. Of course, the fire risks are appreciably smaller in residential districts than they would be in America, since the houses are commonly constructed of stone, are of limited height, and generally do not offer themselves an easy prey to the flames. But far otherwise must it be in the congested warehouse section, and it is really marvelous that disastrous fires are not of more frequent occurrence. It will be of interest to describe seriatim the brigades of four great provincial cities, Belfast, Birmingham, Glasgow, and Manchester. Belfast, the commercial capital of Ireland, is a city of 385,000 inhabitants. During the year 1911, the number of fires amounted to 228, with an estimated fire risk of nearly one million pounds sterling, the actual loss amounting to 52,000-odd pounds, 260,000-odd dollars. Yet the strength of the brigade consists only of 75 firemen, including the superintendent, assistant superintendent, and third officer. The plant includes 16 fire engines, three petrol-driven escapes, one 80-foot extension ladder, and various other smaller apparatus, all of which seem to be absolutely up-to-date. Though it may be remarked that salvage work is accomplished by a petrol salvage motor trap, yet in addition there are two horse and one motor ambulances, 
which responded to over 3,000 calls in that year, covering a distance of 10,194 miles and occupying 32 minutes per journey, that is, from the receipt of the call until their return to the station. These ambulances are used for ordinary accidents. The steam fire engines were only used once, and the motor fire pump only twice during the entire year. Machines traveling to and from fires averaged eight miles for each turnout and were engaged for 133 and a half hours, or an average of 35 minutes for each fire, this calculation including the journey to and from the outbreak. These are remarkable figures, and since within the last 10 years there has been practically no increase in the number of fires, Belfast can congratulate itself upon having one of the most economical and effective systems of fire control, salvage work, and ambulance equipment probably in the entire world. Birmingham, according to the last census, is a city with a population of 840,200, covering an area of 43,500 acres. The fire department consists of a chief officer, two senior subordinates, and 194 rank and file, which represents roughly one fireman to every 221 acres, or 4,200 persons. 1,048 alarms were received during 1912, of which 108 related to chimneys on fire, 126 were false, and 6 were malicious. The estimated value of the property at risk was over 3.5 million pounds, the actual loss approximating 81,000 pounds, $405,000. On an average, these alarms occupied only 37 minutes each, while on 28 days no calls were received, on 67 days only one, on 75 days two, on 24 days six, on two days eight, and on one day eleven. These with some 40 stations and 9,000 hydrants. The police department housed some of the apparatus in their quarters. Amongst the most important appliances may be noted six motor turbine pumps and escapes, twelve steam fire engines, one water tower, a unique feature in English fire practice, three chemical engines, and twenty-one extension ladders. Like Belfast, there is also an ambulance corps, manning no less than eleven ambulances, while amongst minor apparatus may be noted nine smoke helmets of the latest oxygen battery type. It is worthy of note that every man in the brigade possesses a first-aid certificate for ambulance work. The chief officer of the department receives 400 pounds, $2,000 per annum, while ordinary firemen are paid from 24 shillings, $6, to 31 shillings, $7.75 per week. All ranks receive free quarters, light and uniform, eight pence per week boot allowance, and six pence, 12 cents, for washing. Annual leave is granted to the extent of eight days for a fireman, with an addition of 60 hours a month taken in two periods of 24 hours and two of six. All places of amusement are inspected by the department, while public and other buildings under the direct supervision of the brigade as regards fire risk pay a small annual charge, 
the proceeds of which are devoted to the recreation and superannuation funds. This again constitutes a remarkable record for a small though excellently equipped department. Glasgow, which since the commencement of 1912 includes Govan and Partick, has a brigade the authorized strength of which is 195, and is at present 15 short of that number. During 1912, engines and firemen operated at 526 fires, while in 110 cases the outbreaks were so trifling that they were suppressed with hand pumps. The estimated loss amounted to £150,000, $750,000. It is noteworthy that fires reported as due to defective building construction amounted to 202, or over 31 percent. There are 11 stations housing one motor extension ladder, 16 motor pumps, eight steam fire engines, and two motor first aid traps. In the entire department there are only two horses, which is a sufficient indication that with true Scottish acumen motor-propelled vehicles have been found cheaper and more effective, sick transit Gloria Equi. Four first-aid motor machines are in course of construction, each being designed to carry one officer, twelve men, two thousand yards of hose, one thirty-foot extension ladder, an ambulance box, tools, and other necessary gear. When fully laden, these motors will weigh about fifty-five hundred pounds, with a length of nineteen feet on an eleven-foot wheelbase. The number of malicious alarms was peculiarly high, amounting to no less than fifty-nine, with only six convictions for the same. Attendance at fires under certain conditions must be paid for, and the income from this source amounted to nearly four thousand pounds, twenty thousand dollars, while listed amongst special services rendered are the two following interesting items. Entering houses for locked-out tenants, one hundred twenty occasions, and searching the roof of a building for thieves once. Without wishing in the least to be ribald, the writer cannot help wondering why the duty of assisting Burgesses of Glasgow who had either forgotten their latch-keys, or, perhaps, such things do happen, had been locked out on purpose, should have been delegated to members of the fire brigade. The worst outbreak of the year was that caused through the ignition of a cinematograph film while in the process of manufacture. The fire was under control within half an hour, but not before damage to the extent of £5,000, $25,000, had been done. This led to an inquiry into the whole subject, and it was found that in one establishment, the basement of which was heavily stocked with this inflammable material, the upper stories immediately above were utilized as a hotel. It is hardly necessary to dilate upon what would have occurred to the guests had a fire broken out. This incident is mentioned since, no matter how well a building may be constructed, danger of this sort cannot be invited with impunity, especially when the personal safety and property of 785,000 people rest upon 180 firemen. The report of the Manchester Fire Brigade is again remarkable for its brevity, and for the fact that the authorized strength of the force is only 130, including officers, 
for a city of 715,000 inhabitants. All the world knows that within this area are to be found some of the greatest cotton-spinning factories extant, and to the outsider it certainly would appear as though the firefighting force could not be adequate for possible demands. For instance, supposing there were three outbreaks of even a moderate size in different parts of the city at the same time, a perfectly normal contingency to contemplate, how could they be successfully attacked? The 524 fires of the year 1912 represented a property value of over three million pounds, fifteen million dollars, though the loss was only one hundred two thousand pounds, five hundred ten thousand dollars. The firemen were actively engaged during the entire year for three hundred twenty hours, thirty-five minutes, this including false alarms, or under an hour a day while the fireboat responded to seven calls and was actively engaged on only three occasions. Now it may be argued that the four men forming the crew of the fireboat, or the 112 men rated as firemen in the brigade, earn their pay with an absence of worry or anxiety which might be envied by the layman. In fact, doubtless the ratepayer reads the report in question and contemplates the payroll dubiously, revolving the while in his mind whether the total expenditure is justified, or whether, after all, it is not a piece of gross municipal extravagance. The answer is not a difficult one to give. When a man insures his life, he pays a premium for certain benefits, of which perhaps he may never taste, but on that account he does not cease his payments. Similarly, with all outlay for all contingencies, there is no direct and immediate return that can be touched, handled, and assessed at so much material value, but nonetheless the value is existent, though not perhaps to the extent demanded by a captious ratepayer. It is, in short, a payment for municipal fire insurance, and though day after day and month after month the protected area may jog along with no serious outbreak to trouble the even tenor of its way, the time may come when every man and every piece of apparatus will be engaged in a life-and-death struggle for mastery, and it is precisely against that event that the municipality which is far-sighted guards. Hence it is that with the greatest of deference to those concerned, it does strike the writer with something akin to amazement that such colossal values should be so lightly guarded as they apparently are in English provincial towns. For given the best of appliances and the most skilled firemen, what could 130 men accomplish against anything in the nature of a sweeping conflagration? And supposing other fires occurred at the same time, it would be a physical impossibility adequately to protect against the one or attack and quell the other. As an example, it is not necessary to travel beyond the British Isles, in August 1911, there occurred a serious fire in the Carlton Hotel, London, a building of moderate size, and certainly of no greater magnitude than some of the hotels to be found in the towns, mention of which has been made. This outbreak necessitated the employment of 23 steam and motor fire engines and the attendance of 202 officers and men before it could be brought under control. Had this occurred in Manchester, well, it is needless further to comment. 
This is penned in no carping spirit, and with the knowledge that man for man English fire departments are the equal of any in the world. But they cannot accomplish miracles, and rather are the municipalities to blame who, secure in the traditions of the past and unmindful of the chances of the future, are so penny-wise and pound-foolish that they are ready to risk millions of pounds worth of property in order to escape an infinitesimal addition to their rates. Place the whole question on a business basis. Work out the value of the fire insurance premiums paid on the property within the municipal area, and compare the total arrived at with the total expenditure per annum on the fire departments under discussion, and the result will perhaps surprise owners and insurance companies alike. Of course it may be argued that it belongs to the business of the latter to assess their own risks and avoid the acceptance of policies in badly protected areas, but that is outside the main discussion which is concerned with the ethics of firefighting, and most assuredly he would be a bold man who would prophesy that fire would never conquer under such conditions. End of section 17. Recording by Maria Casper.